I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. President Trump and House Democrats are at an impasse about the White House proposal to build a wall on the southern border. And President Trump has talked about the possibility of issuing a order declaring a national emergency to build the wall. On this episode of We the People, we ask what would happen if the president decides to declare a national emergency and divert military funds to build the wall? What statutes could he rely on? And would this action violate the Constitution? Here to illuminate the statutory and constitutional arguments on all sides are two of America's leading constitutional scholars, and I'm thrilled that they've agreed to join us. Sai Prakash is James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia Law School. He is the author of Imperial from the Beginning, the Constitution of the Original Executive, and a contributor to the Interactive Constitution's Article 2 explainers on the Vesting Clause and the Take Care Clause, which, dear We the People listeners, please check out after the show. Sai, thank you so much for joining. Great to be here, Jeff. And Mark Tushnet is William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. He is one of America's leading constitutional scholars, author of the leading casebook on constitutional law, which I have the pleasure of using when I teach constitutional law. And his most recent book, among many, is The Constitution of the United States of America, A Contextual Analysis. Mark, it's an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let us begin with the broad and obvious question, and uh, we'll begin with Sai. If President Trump were to issue an executive order declaring a national emergency and diverting military funds to build the wall, would that violate the Constitution or not? Well, Jeff, I think the answer to that really turns on the statutory question. I don't imagine that either the president or his lawyers will make an argument that's grounded entirely on the Constitution. They'll they'll make they'll make references to the president's role as commander in chief. Uh, they make references to national security, but I don't imagine that they'll say that the Constitution independently grants the president authority to take money from the treasury and build a wall. Instead, they'll be relying primarily on statutory arguments. And so, whether the president has authority to build a wall will be primarily a question, I think, of statutory law. There'll just be some references to national security that are designed to try to get listeners to support the president's actions. Many thanks for that. Uh, We will delve into the statutory arguments uh, in a bit. But uh, Mark, let me begin by asking you the same question. If the president were to issue uh, a national emergency order, would it violate the Constitution or not? I think the way to think about that is to start with the proposition, which I think most constitutional theorists agree with, that every government has to have lodged in it somewhere the power to declare emergencies with the effect of suspending some uh, existing laws. Uh, The real question is, I think, where that power is going to be located. Uh, And in our system, there are, I think, two candidates. One, as I suggested, is that the power is ultimately lodged in Congress, 
which then can delegate to the president the power to declare emergencies under conditions that Congress has specified, uh, or uh, the alternative is uh, that the power is lodged in the president through something like the take care clause or uh, even sort of foundational notions of what it means to have a constitution for an ongoing national government. Sai, you mentioned that it would turn on the statutory question because you don't think there's a residual uh, executive power. Um, tell us about the Youngstown case where President Truman tried to seize the steel mills and the court by a six to three vote said he couldn't rely on his commander in chief power to do that and that Congress, far from authorizing the action, had refused to authorize it and, and Justice Jackson famously gave us three categories. One, uh, when Congress has authorized the action and the president off, uh, operates at his uh, highest level of uh, constitutional security, uh, uh, two, a, a kind of zone of twilight where uh, Congress's intent is ambiguous and third, where Congress has refused to authorize the action and there the president's power is at its lowest ebb. The Youngstown court found that Truman's action was in the lowest ebb category because Congress had refused to authorize the uh, stopping of the strikes in question. Um, how do you think this situation would compare to Youngstown and which of Justice Jackson's categories do you think the president's actions would fall into? Well, I, I, I certainly want to answer that, Jeff, uh, but I also want to, at the end of my remarks, perhaps get back to what um, something that uh, Mark spoke of. I, I think, again, this, you know, if you, once you're in the Youngstown framework that you so expertly outlined, it's really a function of how to read Congress's actions in this area. Um, and on the one hand, Congress, you know, the president has specifically asked Congress right now to give him money to build a wall, and thus far they haven't given him the money that he wants, certainly not as much as he wants. Uh, on the other hand, the president's lawyers are going to cite statutes that they believe allow him to shuffle money around and to use that money to build a wall without regard to whether or not Congress has acquiesced to his current demands. And so, you know, Youngstown itself talked about these three categories, um, but it's clear that, you know, sometimes congressional action is murky. It's not obvious how where to locate it. Has Congress approved of something? Has Congress disapproved of something? Or has Congress been truly silent? And of course, you know, you could you could make an argument for all three of those categories in this case. You could argue that by statute, and I'm sure the president's lawyers will do this, by statute, Congress has authorized him to, to move and shuffle money around. You could argue that Congress uh, has implicitly disapproved this by not giving him the money that he's now currently seeking. And you could argue that Congress just hasn't, you know, hasn't spoken to the question of whether or not the president, you know, has statutory authority to shuffle things around. They haven't, they haven't revisited the statutes in question that the president's likely to rely upon to say, you know, either definitively that he can use that money to build a wall or, or, or to say that he can't. So I, I think, you know, the Youngstown framework um, seems quite interesting, but the, the problem has always been how to actually characterize the activity in question. That was true in that case, and it's, it's equally true today. Mark, Sai uh, is interested in taking up the constitutional as well as the statutory question, and I was too after your first remark. So I'll ask you which category of Youngstown you think the action would fall into. And, and in Youngstown, uh, Truman's lawyers initially claimed that there was inherent executive authority separate from the congressional authorization. Do you think that the president could 
uh, rely on uh, his take care authority uh, to uh, declare a national emergency independent of the statutes? And, and, and then where do you think uh, the statutes uh, fall out? Um, I actually have a fairly expansive view of presidential authority. So just to outline the argument, uh, the president has the duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Those laws include the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution is the Constitution of the United States, so it presupposes that there is a United States. And so if, in the president's judgment, the action is necessary to preserve the United States as a nation, I think he can take care uh, by declaring an emergency and doing what uh, is uh, permissible. I, I do think it's worth noting that there is a difference between what uh, President Truman did in, um, in, in the steel seizure case and the current situation, at least unless you push the argument further, because in addition to the commander-in-chief or whatever other powers the president might have, there's actually an express prohibition in the Constitution dealing with spending money. Um, Article 1, Section 9 says no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. So if the president, even after declaring an emergency, wants to spend money, he's got to find it in some already appropriated fund. Sai, what is your response to what Mark called his expansive view of executive power under the Take Care Clause? What would the framers have made of, uh, of that claim? And, and what do you think of his uh, thoughts on the relation between the Take Care and the Appropriations Clause? I, I think from an originals perspective, uh, Jeff, I would, I would say that uh, the the founders did not believe that the president had any emergency powers. The the one exception would be the president's power to call back Congress into session, which I believe they gave the president in order to get uh, congressional authorization to take the emergency measures that he thought was necessary. I think the way that the founders thought about emergencies, they thought that the legislature ruled the roost, so to speak, that the legislature could suspend habeas corpus, the legislature could authorize martial law. In advance of an emergency, Congress might uh, provide authority to the president. And of course, Congress has done that in, in numerous statutes. Um, and so that's the way I think they thought that most emergencies could be handled as a legal matter. They also thought it was, a, it was possible that the executive might act illegally and then go to Congress for for absolution. And I, I think that actually well reflects the Washington administration. There were a number of crises during the Washington administration. George Washington never uh, uh, argued that he had inherent constitutional authority to deal with them. He always relied upon statutes or he didn't take the measures that he thought uh, were necessary in order to deal with the, the problem. He just waited for Congress to come back and, and, and deal with those problems himself. So I, I, I disagree with Mark's reading uh, uh, of of the the president's duty, I think the way I'd conceive of the presidential oath is the president has to use whatever resources are at his disposal, lawfully provided by Congress, to deal with the problem at hand. He doesn't have the power to suspend habeas corpus, to expend money, um, or to raise the size of the army, uh, even if he thinks it's necessary to do so. He can he can take those actions. He'd be acting illegally, and then it's up for it's up to Congress to decide if it wants to forgive him. But it's not a legal act. I think the duty 
in the oath doesn't supply power. It just imposes an obligation. Thanks for that. Uh, Mark, your response, Sai, says that your broad vision of executive power is not consistent with original understanding. Do you agree or disagree with that? Where, where do you root the broad vision and, and how ultimately would you come out on the interplay between the take care and the appropriations clause as a constitutional matter? Uh, I think the, um, I guess the way I would put it is developments in thinking about what constitutions do uh, since um, the framing period have brought into view the problem that um, legislatures um, really can't anticipate all, all the kinds of emergencies that might arise uh, and that there might be, call them logistical problems in uh, calling them back to get them to do something when an unexpected or unanticipated emergency arises. And at the very least, in that interim period, um, I think a, a well-designed constitution would authorize the president to, would actually affirmatively authorize the president to take action, rather than in, as in size vision, allow the president to take the action in an extra legal kind of way uh, subject to subsequent ratification uh, by Congress. I, I think it's, it's I, I, my view is the action would be lawful from the beginning in this interim period, and then it might be terminated by Congress when it came back into uh, a session, but it would be lawful when taken. Uh, Sai, understanding that uh, our vision of executive power has strayed from the founding era, might Marx's broad vision plausibly be rooted in practice under which presidents have claimed emergency powers under the Constitution and, and courts have been quite open to the idea, especially in the 20th century? Uh, I think Mark is on to something in terms of modern conceptions. Uh, I think there are many people who share the idea that the executive should be able to take interim steps certainly when Congress is not in session. Of course, that was Abraham Lincoln's justification for the suspension of habeas corpus. Congress was not in session, and he thought it was silly to suppose that only Congress could suspend habeas corpus. And so I think that way of thinking has influenced people in, in obviously more recent times. I don't think there's any firm boundary for, for that sort of thinking. I think, as Mark's comments suggested, if you believe that, then you're going to come away perhaps thinking that the president should be able to do anything he thinks is necessary while Congress is not in session, and Congress uh, can perhaps respond. In, in Youngstown itself, I think uh, there are scholars who, when looking at the notes of the conference of the justices, conclude that had Truman's order actually been temporary, uh, that Truman would have won the case. Uh, and it's, it was the indefinite nature of the seizure that lost the case for him. But of course, he wanted it in an indefinite seizure because a, a temporary seizure wouldn't have accomplished his purposes. Uh, his purposes, I think, were partly political and not uh, entirely or primarily uh, related to the Korean War. Well, in order to make a judgment about whether or not the president's uh, actions uh, today would be justified under federal law, we have to look at the National Emergency Act, which is uh, one of the key statutory provisions uh, authorizing emergency reallocation of certain military construction funds. And then there's another statute that authorizes emergency reallocation of certain civil works 
projects funds. Uh, Mark, this is technical, but broadly, the president's lawyers are arguing that uh, the National Emergency Act might allow the president to declare an emergency and reallocate funds that require or may require the use of the armed forces. Uh, His opponents uh, say that uh, you can only divert the funds to build authorized civil works or military construction and civil defense projects that are essential to the national defense. Authorized means authorized by Congress and not just the executive branch, and and this action wouldn't qualify. Where do you come down on this complicated statutory question? I I think the statutory question is a a genuinely difficult one, uh, primarily because of two features of the statute itself. The first is the language that you've read, which says uh, the emergency, when the emergency has to require the use of the armed forces. Uh, Now, require can be read with either a fair amount of stringency, you really need to use the armed forces, or let more generously, um, it would be uh, helpful or appropriate to use the armed forces. Uh, so that's one part. Maybe building the wall uh, is not something that requires the use of the armed forces. Uh, the second uh, part of the statute says that the uh, funds that can be used uh, can be used to build, uh, and I may get the precise language wrong, uh, but it's something like military facilities and the natural reading of that is something like barracks for soldiers who are deployed to some place where there wasn't housing for them, or to build a landing strip for airplanes to land uh, in in a situation that, you know, in a nation where all of a sudden U.S. forces had to be deployed. So the question on that provision is, whether the wall can fairly be described as a uh, military facility in light of the things that are described as uh, military construction elsewhere in the statute. The natural reading of the statutes would be that the wall is not, that this is not an emergency that requires the armed forces and that the wall isn't a uh, military facility. Uh, But in the situation where the president claims that national security is at stake, uh, there might be interpretive principles that would be more lead us, uh, meaning the people of the United States uh, and secondarily the courts to be more deferential to the president's judgment. Thank you for parsing the statute so carefully and thoughtfully. As you say, Section 2808 of the statute has two requirements, which you you well uh, recited. Uh, The president can declare a national emergency that requires the use of the armed forces, and if that's the case, he can then use the military construction funds to undertake military construction projects. Um, So uh, understanding that those are the two criteria, Sai, uh, do you think that the president would have the statutory authority to reallocate funds under this provision or not? Well, first, let me let me say that there's I think there are multiple statutes that may bear on this question, and this is just one of them. 
a very useful summary of all the statutes that might apply is discussed by Margaret Taylor on the lawfare side, and I encourage readers to take a look at it. Um, I, you know, I think, like Mark, this is not an easy. I, I agree with Mark. It's not an easy, uh, not an easy question to answer. If we're just looking at section. 2008, 2808 uh, here. I think the first question is, well, what does it mean to be a national emergency? And I, I think uh, people might be surprised uh, how how easy it is to declare a national emergency and how often they're declared and the sorts of things uh, you know that that trigger a declaration of national emergency. And it, it might very well be that if we look at all the situations where presidents have declared national emergencies, we might come to the conclusion that very few of them are national emergencies. And that when Congress legislates against this background, they know that a national emergency is not something that occurs once in a half a century, but is something in fact that occurs with alarming frequency. That is to say, Congress gives the president the authority to use certain authority in a national emergency, and then lo and behold, we find national emergencies left and right. So we have this national emergency requirement. We have the use of the armed forces. My understanding is the president deployed thousands of members of the armed forces to the border prior to the election. It may very well have been to, to create a predicate for the use of this authority. And then the military construction projects language that Mark uh, cited, it's a little ambiguous, right? Because what is a military construction project? Is a military construction project construction of a military facility, which Mark suggested, or is it instead something, a construction project undertaken by the military without regard to whether it's for a base or not? When you look at the statutory definition of military construction that's referenced you know, in the statute itself, it says it includes any construction development conversion of any military installation. So that language could suggest it's got to be a military installation. Uh, on the other hand, it says includes these things, and it doesn't say it's, it, it, it's these are the only types of things that are uh, to be considered military construction. So I, I just don't find this statute, uh, I don't think the statute can, tells us one way or the other. I think what would be interesting to know is how has this chapter been used in the past? What sorts of things have been used uh, have been have been constructed under it, and and if there's been a tradition of building fences um, along the border or otherwise, then uh, obviously the president has a stronger claim. So I hear from both of you that the statutory question is tough and complicated. But Mark, I, I learned from your casebook. I, I teach my students that we have these three Youngstown categories. So if you had to pick one. Uh, if you were a judge, or if you had to predict which one the Supreme Court would pick, which one would it be? And and tell us also about the relevance, if any, of the fact that the president asked for money for the wall and Congress refused to grant it. Uh, in, in the steel seizure case, Congress had refused in the Taft-Hartley Act to grant the authority that Truman was claiming, and that was relevant to the court's uh, determination that the action fell into the lowest ebb category. Does it matter here? And which category, you know, in, in the end, if you had to pick, do you, would, would you choose? Um, I would start out with uh, an observation, uh, which is that even in the category where the president's power is at its lowest ebb, um, it doesn't mean that the president's power is zero. It's just much less than it would be if Congress hadn't uh, spoken. Uh, second, uh, the lowest ebb is 
as I read Jackson, the situation where Congress has affirmatively prohibited the president from doing what the president, the actions the president has taken. So uh, I, I read Jackson as saying in the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 uh, and the Selective Service Act of 1950, uh, Congress had actually prohibited the president from seizing uh, domestic production facilities uh, rather than just not authorizing him to do so. Um, I'd also note, and this sort of pushes this away from the category three lowest ebb to the category two, uh, where Jackson says things are determined by the imponderables of events, um, that uh, there's a difference between Congress affirmatively acting, that is, enacting a statute, and Congress not doing something that the president asked to be done. Um, again, we had the Taft-Hartley Act and the Selective Service Act in uh, the steel seizure case. Here, there's nothing, uh, no appropriation, no authorization, or no prohibition uh, on building a wall. Um, I suppose I have to add a footnote to that. In the absence of an appropriation given Article 1, Section 9, maybe there is a prohibition flowing from the Constitution rather than from congressional action. Okay. Um, but uh, finally, uh, the, the strongest case for the president, I think, is that there's actually an authorization. Uh, in this, uh, what, 2808, it, it says, 2808 says, when the president declares a, a national emergency, un heretofore unobligated funds become available to the president for uh, where the armed forces are required for military construction uh, projects. So I think the president's case is, yeah, you've, you've said I can do this and uh, you've given me the money to do it in these this pot of unobligated money. True, you've placed some restrictions on it, but the president's lawyers will argue that um, uh, the president's judgment that armed forces are necessary and that this is military construction ought to receive a great deal of uh, deference. So I actually think this is mostly a Category 1 situation. Wonderful. Thank you for that very clear answer, and I'm very glad to uh, hear it, um, uh, especially because it allows me to ask Sai whether he agrees or not. Sai, which category would you put the president's action in if forced to choose? Well, I, I think I think we need to know more about what statutes they're actually relying upon. There's all there, there are other statutes, as I mentioned. There's there's 10 U.S.C. 284, which is about uh, drug intervention and drug interdiction that allows the president to build, among other things, fences along the international border. There's also uh, 33 U.S.C. Uh, 2. 293 reprogramming funds in a, in a national emergency when dealing with civil army civil works projects. So I think there are multiple statutes. If, if we're going to start from scratch and, and think about Youngstown, what I'd say is, I think if you take a look at the three categories, um, both category one and category three talk about the express or implied will of Congress. And so I think it's possible for someone to look at what Congress has done 
in the past several years and say it's against it's against the uh, implied will of Congress for the president to expend more on a wall than Congress has specifically appropriated, notwithstanding this more general language in statutes that I, I just cited. So I don't think that congressional disapproval has to be expressed contrary to, to what, what Mark is saying. And, uh, you know, to answer that question, I think, involves really you know, parsing these statutes, but also parsing the practices under them. And then the final thing I'd say is that's the sort of beauty, the indeterminacy of, of Jackson's categories. You, It's very difficult to say oftentimes when you're talking about a situation of, of, of seeming silence, whether Congress has implicitly disapproved of something or not. Um, and, and there are cases where the court has said, you know, we think that Congress has implicitly approved of a practice um, where you know others have said I, we actually think it's implicit disapproval. So I'm thinking of the Dames and Moore v. Reagan case that arose uh, during the Reagan administration, having to do with the Iranian U.S. Claims Tribunal and the agreement between uh, Iran and the United States or the, the Algiers Accord, where the court said there was implicit approval on the part of Congress to allow the executive branch to settle international claims. But uh, many scholars said that that was a mistake and that Congress had implicitly disapproved of the practice or at least had been silent and therefore it should have been in category two. And so I, I think there's a, a wonderful indeterminacy to Jackson's three categories, both with respect to how to characterize the congressional action in question. And then, as Mark points out, what to do with it once you're in a particular category. None of those categories tell you tells you whether the president wins or loses. They just give you percentages, right? If you're in category one where Congress and the president are acting together, Jackson predicts that the president will likely win, not that he definitely will win. And if you're in category three, Jackson predicts the president will lose, but he doesn't say the president actually should or will lose. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of this will turn on the judicial perception of the action in question, which will be colored more about, you know, by by the statutes and 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 the stretches being made, but also perhaps by the judge's perception of the president's motives. Uh, thanks so much for that. Um, Mark, uh, we often overlook Justice Hugo Black's majority opinion uh, in Youngstown, but he found that Congress had refused to authorize the uh, authority in question. W was that uh, refusal, in fact, clearer uh, then than it is here? And what is the relevance of Black's majority opinion, if, if anything. Well, again, I may have uh, an idiosyncratic take on the opinion, uh, but my take on it is that uh, Black is actually relying, I think maybe explicitly, it's been a long time since I looked at the text uh, uh, early uh, in detail, uh, on Article 1, Section 9. I, I think his analysis is this. You've seized the steel mills that creates an obligation on the United States to compensate the steel mill owners for the taking of their property. And there's no appropriation for that. Uh, and therefore, uh, you can't do it um, because it's a taking and Congress hasn't appropriated money uh, uh, for compensating for the taking. Um, Again, I, my reading of the current situation is that this pot of money in the unobligated funds account 
uh, would allow uh, compensation for the taking of property along the border uh, to build the fence. So Black's analysis wouldn't, uh, in, in my view, Black's analysis wouldn't uh, come into play. Thank you for that. Before we leave Youngstown, dear We the People listeners, I want to uh, emphasize that Jackson was one of the most beautiful writers of the 20th century. His prose is such a pleasure to read. And for a real treat and for extra credit on the podcast, check out Jackson's book, That Man, an insider's portrait of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Oxford uh, published it in 2003. It's just an amazing, intimate portrait of FDR written as beautifully as Jackson wrote everything. Um, Sai, uh, final thoughts on Youngstown and Black's opinion, if you think that there's any um, thing more to say. And then I want to introduce this question of whether this Supreme Court might be uncomfortable with the broad delegation of authority to the president that the National Emergency Acts represents. This term, the court is taking up a non-delegation uh, case called Gundy involving the National Sex Offenders Act and Justice Neil Gorsuch and others have expressed concern that Congress is delegating too much power to the president. So is it possible if this case got up to the Supreme Court that the court might question Congress's ability to delegate all this power to the president? Yeah. So first on, on Black's opinion, I think Black's opinion is a you know, reflects the sort of textual nature of Justice Black. What's 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 weird about Youngstown is, although he gets a majority of the justices to join it, many of the justices who are nominally part of his opinion write separately and express opinions that seem inconsistent with his approach to the case. And so even though he is writing the majority opinion, it doesn't appear that Justices Frankfurter or or even Jackson really agree with the framework he's propounding. And, you know, I don't think the basic question, I think, for application of Justice Black's framework here is, well, has Congress authorized the transfer of funds to, to help build a wall? And you can't answer that just by reading Justice Black's opinion, right? Because, of course, you know, it's possible that Congress has authorized the president to transfer funds, which takes us to your second question, which is about delegation. And I think you're quite right that just some justices are uh, quite interested in reviving a stronger version of the non-delegation doctrine. Um, having said that, I don't know if they're also willing to do so in the context of national security. That is to say, um, if in fact uh, there is a case for delegations of a, a broad authority to the executive, it is strongest in the area of national security as opposed to uh, areas having to deal with the economy or regulation of the airwaves or uh, regulation of election law. So it, it might be that the very people who are interested in reviving the non-delegation doctrine aren't as interested in, in reviving it in areas of national security. Uh, many thanks for that. Uh, Mark, your thoughts on the non-delegation doctrine or any uh, skepticism on the part of the conservative justices about the broad delegations of executive power, whether they might be uncomfortable with it and might be willing to roll it back? I think it might be uh, valuable to hear to distinguish between uh, who the recipients of the delegated authority uh, uh, might be. Uh, there has been a significant movement among, call them constitutional conservatives, uh, to challenge delegations of authority from Congress to administrative agencies. 
um, such as the FCC or the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I don't think there's as much discussion uh, in that domain uh, of delegations of authority directly to the president or to the office of the president. Uh, now, I should say, of the two, my view, three cases in which the court has invoked a non-delegation doctrine, uh, uh, two involved delegations to private entities. Uh, one did involve a delegation directly to the president, and the court said that was impermissible. Uh, but that was, by these standards, a long time ago, and had to size uh, observations about um, the president's authority uh, in national security matters, and in particular, national security matters uh, occurring in some sense outside the borders of the United States, um, uh, a, a thought that um, much of the discussion of the delegation idea has accompanied uh, uh, an interest in unifying all the delegated power in the presidency itself. And so, again, direct exercises of delegated authority by the president might be different uh, in the view, in the eyes of people who have been uh, worried about uh, delegated authority. Side, there's another series of broad constitutional issues that might arise if the court would, were to uphold the president's power to declare the emergency and redeploy the money, and that involves the question of eminent domain. In a recent piece on the Volokh conspiracy, Ilya Soman says that uh, it would uh, violate principles of eminent domain to try to seize the immense amounts of private land that would be required to build the wall. And Gerald Dickinson, uh, who uh, has written extensively about eminent domain, says that at the time of the framing, the federal government would uh, ask the state governments to seize land but would never presume to do it on its own. So how serious might the pushback from judges on the eminent domain point be? Well, I think the way to think about that, Jeff, is to first ask the, the basic question of whether the, the Congress has authorized the president to use eminent domain in this context or otherwise. And I, you know, I don't know of any statute that generally authorizes the president to, to, uh, to seize private property. I, I, you know, so even if the president has statutory authority to build a fence and has appropriations to, to construct it, to actually build it, um, I think there's a separate question of whether he could seize private land and build the fence on that land. It might well be that he can only build a fence uh, on portions of land on the border that are already owned by the federal government. Um, I think um, what what the, the, the authors that you're citing are suggesting is that uh, if you go back into the, the to the ancient past, to the founding, uh, this was an article uh, argument first made by Will Bode, I believe. Uh, the, the framers didn't think that the the, the the founding fathers or that the framers didn't believe that the Congress had general authority to seize uh, private land, that the takings clause that's in uh, the Bill of Rights 
uh, didn't presume a general power to seize property. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure that's that's right. Um, I think uh, I don't know why you would include a restriction on the seizure of private property if you didn't believe that the federal government had private property in the first instance. Um, but I, I think the more the, sort of the more the first question would be: Does the president have authority under statutes to seize private property before you even get into the question of whether justices are willing to revisit the established practice of of assuming that the federal government has constitutional authority to seize private property so long as it pays just compensation. Thanks so much for that. Mark, uh, your thoughts on the eminent domain question and whether courts might push back. Uh, First of all, I I myself am not persuaded by the originalist argument that uh, has been rattling around for a while. in part uh, because even on many originalist views, um, the way we understand the Constitution's meaning today uh, is shaped by uh, practices over the intervening years and the practice of uh, of, uh, federal governmental uh, taking of property with compensation goes back now a long way. It doesn't go back to the beginning, that's clear, but it goes back quite a long way. And so I think the Constitution, uh, as properly construed today, does authorize the government to uh, seize property with compensation. Uh, the second, the next question is, again, as Sai keeps insisting, and properly so, whether statutes authorize uh, this particular form of seizure. And my instinct on this, again, without having looked in great detail at all the range of uh, possible statutes, is that uh, if, so let, let uh, suppose the project is the construction of a military barracks, clearly a military construction project. If in order to um, make that barracks safe. Uh, the government has to seize property surrounding it to build a fence around the barracks. Um, I think that it's a um, it's a either necessary or sensible implication from the authority to build the barracks that you have authority to seize and compensate seize property and compensate for the stuff that is either necessary or appropriate for uh, building the barracks. And so we're back to the original problem, is uh, building a fence, a military construction project authorized by 2808 or under any of the other statutes that um, Sai referred to. Thank you for that. And thanks to you both for a really careful and very illuminating parsing of the complicated constitutional, statutory, and eminent domain questions. I want to step back now and just take a beat to note the obvious, which is that uh, some conservatives and libertarians uh, are expressing concern about the broad uh, delegations of executive power that uh, the court has upheld uh, in the 20th century. And if courts were to uphold this one, there might be calls for 
reform to have Congress reassert its uh, constitutional authority and to rein in executive emergency power. Sai, what kind of reforms are on the table and which ones do you think might be most convincing? Well, I, you know, it's it's hard to say what reforms members of Congress are actually contemplating. I think right now the members of Congress are really just reacting to whatever the president is saying and tweeting and, and what he'll actually end up doing. But I think one reform that doesn't quite deal with this situation, but would deal with many of the situations where the president's able to declare a national emergency of various sorts and then thereby use executive or thereby use statutory authority conferred by Congress is to say that uh, the national emergency authority expires 60 days after Congress next meets, thereby ensuring that it's temporary and thereby leaving the ultimate question to Congress. That is to say, rather than giving the president authority that turns on his sole say-so, his sole declaration of a national emergency, Congress can give him authority to deal with a problem in the short term and provide that, you know, that it lasts until Congress returns and maybe add 60 days there to give it themselves some time to to, to wrap their heads around the issue. But that way it's not indefinite, right? That way we don't have emergencies that last for years. And, and we don't have situations where it's, you know, where the, the declaration is really solely on the say-so of the president. I mean, in effect, it still would be, but of course, if Congress didn't agree with the declaration, it would be time-bound in a way that often is not true now. Um, in other words, you know, if, if the president's able to use this authority, he's able to use it indefinitely, right? Because there's no restriction, uh, uh, time restriction placed on his ability to, to transfer from funds from one account to another. Thank you for that. Mark, I'll ask you first, uh, do you think reforms are necessary or do you believe that broad executive authority is consistent with, with your vision of the Constitution for the reasons you, you began by describing? And then if, if, if Congress were to adopt reforms to rein in emergency executive power, which ones do you think might be worth considering? I think it's essentially impossible to describe in advance all the types of emergencies that might arise. Uh, uh, just because uh, legislative imagination is limited and legislative time is limited. Uh, think about um, oh, any you know, disaster science fiction movie uh, where there's a geostorm or something like that. Uh, uh, it's very hard to figure out uh, or, or to get Congress's attention to enact a statute that would specify, well, Yes, you can declare it a national emergency if there's a geostorm. So substantively, I think it's really hard to uh, apply, to identify all the possible emergencies that there might be. Um, the National Emergencies Act does try uh, a quasi-procedural mechanism. Uh, it turns out that under current law, uh, the mechanism is unconstitutional. Um, the uh, the size suggestion of time-limited uh, uh, declarations uh, is another procedural device. Um, I'm skeptical about whether that could work. The thing that immediately comes to mind is president declares an emergency, which by this statute would expire 
uh, 60 days after Congress meets. Congress meets and is gridlocked on the problem, doesn't affirmatively do anything one way or the other. Uh, and the president says, well, the problem's still here. I'm going to declare a new emergency. Uh, and I now have 60 more days to see if Congress can do something, and so on. Uh, I, I, I'm just, uh, the, these procedural mechanisms ultimately rest on a, a hopeful vision of how uh, responsible politicians would behave under the circumstances. And uh, I'm not as hopeful uh, or sufficiently hopeful to think that these procedural mechanisms would actually work. So my bottom line is not that I'm enthusiastic about the idea of expansive executive authority, I am not, uh, but rather I think is, uh, my position is that I'm resigned to the fact that we're extremely likely to have to live with a system in which the executive does have a extremely expansive authority. Well, thank you for that note of resigned pessimism, which is a bracing way to uh, conclude this really extremely sophisticated and, and helpful uh, discussion of the uh, complexities of the statutory and constitutional questions. It's time now for closing arguments. So as intensely and succinctly as possible, I will ask you to sum up for our wonderful and devoted and closely listening We the People listeners uh, the following question. Uh, if the president issues and declaration of national emergency to build the wall, would it violate federal statutes or the Constitution? And we'll begin with Sai. Well, it's been great to be here with you and Mark, Jeff. Um, I, I guess I'd sum up by saying the jury is still out. I think the way to think about it is not to jump to a conclusion that he can or can't do it based on one's general views of the president or one's general views about a wall. I think it, it's a it's a difficult statutory question, as both Mark and I have emphasized, and it turns on, I think, at least three statutes, uh, and I think it turns on how those statutes have been implemented. And you know, I I think to answer that question, you'd want to see the arguments being made by administration lawyers, you'd want to see the practices, and so I think it's it's premature to say that he he can do it. It's premature to say he can't, which is not. You're not the kind of definitive answer uh, that people, uh, that many people will uh, appreciate, but I think it's the, the right answer. Thank you very much for that. And Mark, the last word is to you. If the president were to issue a declaration of national emergency to build a wall, would it violate federal statutes or the Constitution? I would distinguish between two ways of answering that question. The first would be uh, would a court find that there was a violation of the statutes or the Constitution? Um, uh, on, on the first, would a court find a violation of the statutes? Um, I think the it's a, it is a genuinely difficult question. My intuition slash instinct or skepticism uh, leads me to think that they would not find it to violate the statute. They'd find some way to find it statutorily authorized. And uh, even more strongly, I think, they would uh, uh, find that the action, if authorized, 
was constitutionally constitutionally uh, permissible. The other way of thinking about it, though, is uh, that it's up to we, the people, uh, to decide whether the action is statutorily authorized or constitutionally permissible. And there, in another sense, uh, that that I'd invoke the phrase Psy introduced, I think the jury is out. Uh, that is, if the president took this action, there would be some sort of political response. And, and that response might be uh, a judgment uh, of the people manifested in polls and ultimately in elections uh, about that the action was impermissible. Um, I myself am much more interested in that second kind of, or that second path to thinking about whether something's constitutionally permissible or not than the judicial path. Uh, but again, on both of them, really, I think the jury would be out for quite a while. Thank you so much, Sai Prakash and Mark Tushnet, for a truly illuminating uh, discussion about a deeply complicated and incredibly important constitutional and statutory question. That was a wonderfully appropriate call on We the People for We the People to make up our own minds about the constitutionality of central questions of our public life. We cannot do that unless we educate ourselves about the complexity of those questions, and that is exactly what you, Mark, and Sai have helped us do in the highest tradition of We the People, as Justice Brandeis said, quoting Isaiah, come let us reason together. You have educated us and allowed us to be guided by reason in the process. Mark and Sai, thank you so much for joining. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Check out our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, which is the live feeds of all of our great town hall programs in Philadelphia and around the country. Uh, and I, I know you'll uh, learn from them as much as I do. And dear We the People listeners, it's the new year. I wish each of you a very happy year of learning in 2019. And I hope that you'll always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. All of this great learning and light that we're able to spread is possible only because of the engagement, support, and devotion of people like you across America who are taking the time to educate yourself about the Constitution so that you can be citizens in the highest sense. It is such a privilege to moderate these conversations and convene these wonderful thinkers to learn with them and to learn with you. So I want you to signify your membership in the National Constitution Center family of learners by joining the National Constitution Center. Go to the website and click on the membership tab and sign up to be a lifelong learner with the National Constitution Center. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.